Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, and I bring you greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ from your brothers and sisters at Lovettsville Baptist Church, where I am privileged to serve as one of the pastors there and lead that congregation. Um, I'm so thankful to be here with you all. We have the same middle and last name as churches. Isn't that really cool? And uh, we, are, we are just over a year old as a church. Um, so we planted um, out of Hamilton Baptist Church just over a year ago. So we are a year old. It's been a while. I should have opened with this since I've been in a church building. Um, we meet in a local elementary school up in Lovettsville. And so we're just learning to walk as a church who's one year old. So as a church who's a lot older than us, what are you, what are you guys learning to do? I'm thankful to be here, and I'm thankful that uh, David, your pastor, is right now preaching. We're about 15 minutes ahead of you all there um, at Lovettsville Baptist Church. And I'm excited for this, you know, what we call a pulpit swap, really for, for two reasons. One, I want you all to be aware, and I want my church to be aware of other gospel-believing, gospel-preaching churches who are not that far away from us. Um, brothers and sisters, you are not alone, and I want my people in Lovettsville to know they're not alone. Isn't it encouraging to know we're not the only ones doing this? We're not the only ones believing this, and even our orders of service look awfully familiar as well. Second of all, I want my people to sit under good preaching, and I've gotten to know David over the last year, um, and that brother is a good friend. He's a good encouragement, and I'm excited that you all have him here as your pastor and I'm excited that my church gets to have him for a Sunday as he faithfully preaches the scriptures to them. So with all of that, I look forward to preaching to you this morning. If you do have your Bible, would you please turn to Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5. And as you're turning there, you, uh, you've probably heard it said before, right, that Christianity is a crutch for weak people. What do you think about that? Or maybe you've heard it said that God helps those who help themselves. Now, I realize you're probably thinking, okay, no, I I don't believe that. You're not putting that in your statement of faith or anything like that. But you probably thought that this past week. And you'll probably think that this coming week, in the middle of a Tuesday afternoon. Both statements are kind of luring to us or kind of tempting to us because both statements admit that we need help. We don't have it all together. I mean, nobody's perfect. And both statements seem to acknowledge that God can help us where we fail. But both of those statements, friends, miss Jesus altogether. And as we'll see in our passage today, I'd like to use the words of John Newton from the 18th century and offer you a better statement about Christianity and Jesus, where he writes, few if any come to Jesus till reduced to self despair. Long we either slight or doubt him, but when all the means we try prove we cannot do without him, then 
Oh, then at last to him we cry. What we discover in Mark chapter 5 this morning, verses 21 through verse 43, is that Christianity is not merely for those who need some help, but the message of Jesus, friends, I remind you this morning, or perhaps for the first time, is for those who are utterly helpless. And it's when you find yourself in this situation, when you understand this condition, that you're actually in a posture to see life himself and receive peace himself. And so in this passage this morning, really the the point is simple as I've titled it, Only Believe. Jesus is calling us to only trust him. And what we'll see this morning is that no matter who you are, Jesus rescues desperate people by faith. Let me read Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Hear now the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. 
But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the little girl got up and began to walk for she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome, immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, would you help us this morning to see you? in your scriptures. Would you help us to hear your voice, not just in our heads, but help these truths to take deep, deep roots in our hearts. Your word transforms, and so we ask that it would do that very thing today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. No matter who you are, Jesus rescues desperate people by faith. Lovettsville Baptist Church has been going through the gospel according to Mark, and so I thought it would be good for me to take a snapshot of that and give to you all today. And as you're reading the gospel according to Mark, what you'll discover is that the question keeps coming up again and again, who is Jesus? which sounds such, such like a basic question for probably most of you, if not all of you this morning, who are sitting in church. But the question is raised in chapter 4, when the disciples are on the sea, these men who've been following Jesus, and this guy, this rabbi, speaks, and the storm stops. And they ask the question, who is this? And we find ourselves in a section where Mark is continuing to provide evidence and situations to help fill that in. He's told us at the beginning that Jesus is the Christ, He's the Son of God, but now He's giving us account after account to help us not only hear that, but see that. And He showed that Jesus is Lord over nature, He's showed that Jesus is master over the spiritual realm. And today we're confronted with death itself, disease. What about that, Jesus? Also, we're here in Mark chapter 5, we have a sandwich. Typically, Mark does this about eight or nine times in his gospel. He'll begin a story, and then he'll interrupt that story and then he'll come back to that story. Did you see that in this passage? We have Jairus. Jesus goes with him, and then all of a sudden, there's this woman who comes on the scene. And then our passage ends going back to Jairus and his daughter. Commentators have referred to this as a Markin sandwich. It's a way for Mark to communicate something about Jesus that 
one story just won't do. So we're meant to take these stories together and see the one big message. And the key to getting at to the main point of this message is to see the differences between the characters. And we'll come back to that. But like a stage set with multiple scenes, multiple characters, I want us to first just walk through this passage scene by scene together this morning, feeling, seeing, perhaps even touching, experiencing everything that these people were experiencing in that day. And then I'll offer some brief reflections on our passage. So scene one, Jesus and his disciples are back on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as Mark describes what happened on this day, he includes so many details, which is quite uncommon for Mark, because Mark is the shortest gospel. He's the fastest gospel. His favorite word is immediately, so he's just going through, going through. But in this scene, or scenes, he uses a lot of detail. It's as if he wants us to slow down a bit, pay attention. And it sounds like an eyewitness account. Sounds like somebody was really there to see everything that was going on, which invites us 2,000 years later to, to see what's going on as well. Stories have a way of communicating that mere statements don't. Who is this guy, speaking of Jesus? What was it like to be around him? What was it like to be alive when he was walking? And what was it that caused some of the people to give up everything. I mean, think about it. What was it about Jesus that caused at least some people, many people, to give up everything just to be around him? Jesus had just crossed over in a boat from the other side of the sea where he finds himself once again surrounded by a crowd. They've likely heard reports by this time about this guy this traveling preacher and all that he was teaching and all that he was doing. So the crowds wanted a front row seat as you or I would to see what this guy was really all about. Maybe if they're lucky, they would get to see one of his miracles that they've heard about. Does Jesus, as he steps off the boat, begin to teach? Has he even taken three steps before Above the buzz of the crowd, a kind of frantic and distraught man rushes to Jesus. But notice in our passage, this isn't just any man. We know who he is. It's one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus. It's one of the men who oversaw the services and property of the local synagogue. It's Jairus. It's one of the men who the crowd would have likely known who he was. Jairus. And it's as if Jairus is out of breath when we meet him because he is falling on his face and he's earnestly imploring of Jesus to do something. My little daughter, Jesus. She's about to die. Come, lay hands on her so that she may live. And wasting no time, verse 24, 
Jesus, what? Goes with him. And so does the crowd, pushing up against him like a stampede. I imagine it was a hot day, a dusty road, and you can just imagine this swarm of people traveling with Jesus to Jairus' house. What was it like? Was it kind of a loud stampede? Was everybody chattering, asking what Jesus is going to do? Or was everybody in silence, afraid for this little girl? Was Jairus leading the pact, or did everybody know where he lived? Was he just trying to keep up? Did Jairus have tears in his eyes as he thought about his little daughter on the brink of death? If we had a picture of this scene, could we even pick Jesus out? Of course, he'd have the little halo above him. But if he didn't have that, and I'm guessing he didn't, would we be able to even tell who Jesus was in the midst of this? Would he be in the center, the back? Where is he? Do you feel the commotion that's going on? We're we're hit with it right away. And then, strangely, we jump from this piece of bread into somewhere else. And we're entered with a, a new scene. Somehow and in some way, there was a woman who did see Jesus. She did know who he was, and she found him. And as for, uh, according to Mark, it's as if everything else fades out for a moment. Everything I just described to you kind of becomes background noise for a moment. And the camera pans in on this woman. And before Mark gets to a single verb, he piles up seven adjectives to describe the condition, her pitiful condition of this woman who we see has been for the past 12 years suffering from a disease. Just listen for a moment to all the adjectives that Mark gives us. He says, this woman, she has suffered much under many doctors. She had spent all that she had And she was not at all better, but only grew worse. This was all due to some kind of hematological disease, literally a flow of blood. And don't pass over this for a moment. It may not make sense to us living 2,000 years later, but let's just remind ourselves of the context of this disease for a moment. If you've ever read Leviticus chapter 15, which if you haven't, maybe that's what you can do this afternoon, a woman we discover in Leviticus chapter 15 with an ongoing bleeding disorder beyond what is normal is considered to be unclean. She and everything she touches, that's this woman in this passage. And to be unclean in Jewish culture wasn't just, ooh, she didn't wash her hands. It was, you've got to keep your distance. You couldn't even sit in the same chair that this woman sat in. Or you too would become unclean. That's this woman. Do you really see for a moment? And, and again, Mark, who's usually quick-paced immediately, let's move on, let's get to the next scene, piles up seven descriptions of this woman. 
He wants us to stop for a moment and stare. And so, do you see this woman? Do you see her? She's suffering the distress of the disease. She's in the pain of poverty. She has the agony of isolation and and being a social outcast. If somebody's getting close to her, she would have to yell out, unclean, stay away. And unlike Jairus, we don't even know her name. She's hopeless. But as the scene moves on and you see her looking at Jesus and she's thinking, Mark gives us an inside look and she's thinking, if if I can touch him, if I can touch Jesus, I've heard about him, perhaps I've seen him, if I just touch him, I know that I'll be healed. But as soon as she says that word touch, we're thinking, no, 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 you're unclean. You can't go touch him. You can't even be around people, and there's a crowd here. If she touches anyone, they too will become unclean. And it's at this moment, maybe when she covers her face a bit and rushes through the crowd, pushes her way through them, and touches, she touches the garment of Jesus. And friends, Jesus should be instantly made unclean. But what happens? The opposite occurs. Instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the woman's healed. She becomes clean. Immediately, Mark writes, there's that word, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body, friends, a feeling that she had not felt for 12 long years. Verse 29, she was healed. She was healed. And perhaps as she's there, sitting on the ground, as the crowd continues to move on, she's thinking, finally, I'm healed. Nobody else knew what was going on. I mean, just think about it. Only the woman and Jesus, nobody had a clue that this woman was suffering so much in this scene. She just comes out of nowhere. She touches Jesus, and she's likely thinking, thank goodness I'm healed. And she sees the crowd moving away toward Jairus' house. Yet, Jesus stops. He stops, and he says, who touched my garments? Again, no one knew a miracle just happened. Nobody had a clue, especially the disciples, right? Mark pulls them out to show us. Nobody knew that a miracle just happened. The disciples kind of respond like you or I would respond when Jesus asked, who touched me? The disciples say, Jesus, you're in a crowd. (laughs) What do you mean who touched you? Who hasn't touched you? This scene and this scenario reminds me of a quote by John Piper that says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. No, 
Who touched me, Jesus asks. You see, there's more than healing that Jesus wants to give to this woman. He has more to give her. The woman, she's afraid. She came and fell down before him. And what does it say? She told Jesus the whole truth. Now, what does it mean for this woman to tell the whole truth? Is she confessing her sins? Is she telling the truth about herself? I imagine it was something like this. I tried everything. I had no one else to go to. I was desperate, Jesus, and you were my last hope. Whatever she said, Jesus replies, daughter, your faith has saved you. I know most of our Bibles say, made you well, but it's really the word that's often translated as salvation and save. And Jesus says, daughter, your faith, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Be healed. Instead of condemning her for her shameless act of touching him, he welcomes her into his family. There's a relationship to be had. And if you were to read Mark chapter 3, you would see there's this whole discussion about Jesus' family. For his physical family is actually sitting outside, and it's those who are listening to his words that he invites on the inside. And here Mark seems to be picking up that theme again to say, this hopeless lady, she was healed, but there's more that Jesus was giving her. He's bringing her into his family. Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed. And just as Jesus gets those words out of her mouth, even verse 35 says he was still speaking, it's as if the camera pans back out. Remember, we were actually beginning with another story at the beginning, and the camera zooms back out, and we receive the devastating news. Jairus, your daughter... She's died, a messenger said from his house. Don't, Jairus, don't trouble the rabbi anymore. She's dead. Overhearing what was said, Jesus ignores the unbelief, and it's as if he looks Jairus right in the eyes. He's, look at me, Jairus. Look at me. And perhaps he's looking at you and I as well, and he says, don't fear, only believe. And you have to imagine that this woman is still standing here as well, and perhaps it's as if Jesus is looking at her too as he's looking at Jairus, saying, look, Jairus, believe, trust me. And leaving the crowd behind, Jesus, Jairus, Peter, James, and John continue to the house. And in verse 38, Jesus and Jairus finally arrive at his house. And this is not a moment, a scene that any of us would want to be at. Perhaps you've been in a scene like this before. 
but a 12-year-old girl has just died. And there's weeping, and there's wailing, and there's crying, and there's screaming. To which Jesus asks a very strange question. He says in verse 39, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is sleeping. And so audacious and bizarre, even in this moment of horrific pain, the crowd hears what Jesus says and begins to laugh at him. <laughs> what do you mean? Why are we weeping? Why are we wailing? The, the daughter, she's, she's dead. So Jesus, what does he do? He put them all outside. And that's a bit mild, because that same word that Jesus put them outside is, oh, again, typically translated as throwing. I don't know that Jesus literally picked up people and threw them outside, but there was some force behind this putting outside. As they're laughing at Jesus' words, he's, go out. And we begin to see his fierce love for this little girl. It's the same word that was used in Mark when the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Most times when this word is used, it's in reference to Jesus casting out demons, cleansing the temple. And here we come into this room. It's just dad, mom, three disciples, and Jesus. Again, it's another desperate situation. It's hopeless. And Jesus takes her hand. He touches her. And unlike Elijah, which we read about earlier, Jesus does not cry out to the Lord for help in this situation. He himself simply speaks. And he says, Talitha, which means little girl, sweetheart, Talitha Kum. Little girl, get up. And the voice, the only voice that can actually speak into death and it respond does just that. And the little girl, here's the word again, immediately gets up and walks. And since she was 12 years old, she was hungry. She needed some food. And, and what happened? They were immediately overcome with amazement. This is the first time in Mark where we see that the kingdom of God that he talked about coming with Jesus actually extends its borders beyond death itself. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Again, Jesus is not ready to come out publicly and say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the promised one, because people of that day just have too many bad misconceptions about what the Messiah is, what he's going to do. For, so for now, you believe this, you trust this, but I'm going to talk about this in my own time. Don't speak about it right now. What are we to learn from this scene? 
What are we to learn from this sandwich? It starts with Jairus and his daughter. This unnamed woman comes into the scene, and then we're left back with Jairus and the daughter. Well, like I said, this passage is teaching us that it doesn't matter who you are, Jesus rescues desperate people by faith. So I want to think just for a few moments this morning and reflect on these scenes just about Jesus. And I want us to consider three areas, his wisdom, his, love, his power, and his love. His wisdom, his love, and his power this morning from this passage. First, his wisdom. Imagine rushing to the ER with your child who's on the brink of death. You get to the desk, and the nurse will, wheels out a bed, and just as you're about to help get your daughter into this bed, through the doors, through the back, an older man bursts through the doors explaining that, I need help, my chronic pain is back. And your little girl who's on the brink of death, the bed that you're about to place her in is taken and the nurse goes from her to this man. Now, in your mind, so many things are happening. Like, of course, you, you feel bad for this guy. He's been suffering for so long. But my little girl, you feel that. that that's Jairus in this passage. It feels terrible, I, I imagine, that this woman's been suffering for the past 12 years, but his little girl is only 12 years old. And she's about to die. Why? Maybe you're thinking this as we're reading it. You would be if you didn't know the ending. But we're all asking, why are you stopping for her? Doesn't the first situation seem a bit more urgent? Don't you understand my need, perhaps Jairus is saying? At the very least, it's confusing. But what Jesus is doing here, friends, is the truth we find throughout the stories of the Bible over and over and over again. God does not operate on our schedule. This frustrates us. It raises questions and it even provokes anger sometimes in our hearts. God, God what are you doing? You should do something. And it doesn't help when everyone around us is telling us to stop with the Jesus stuff, laughing at us like the crowd was here. Why trouble Jesus anymore, they say. But it's in this that Jesus says to Jairus, and I believe he says to us as well, trust me, I know what I'm doing. Look at me, Jairus. Don't be afraid, only trust me. I know you have so many questions and, and reasons to doubt, but come with me, let's go. And I remind you, brothers and sisters, that trusting Jesus means even trusting Jesus in those moments when you're having doubts. 
when life doesn't make sense, when you think the schedule should look like this, but you're just confused. We, like many who have prayed before us, prayed, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Pastor Ray Ortland once said, my capacity for belief is not measured by my certainty, but by my need. Faith is not my bringing the great questions of existence under my control. Faith is turning to the Lord in his all-sufficiency for my desperate need to hear and receive what he has to say to me. Reminded of that old hymn by William Cooper when he writes, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Listen, I'm not trying to come into your circumstance or whatever you're dealing with today and say, trust the Lord, don't worry about it, and not feel the pain and, and be stoic about it. That's not what I'm trying to do. But what I'm trying to show you from Scripture is that the Lord works in ways that you or I can't comprehend. His schedule is far different than yours. And this scene is showing us in anything, we can trust his wisdom in this. He was faithful then. He's not going to change. And so we look to his wisdom. But also we look to his love. Look back at verse 24. And he went with Jairus. Jairus comes with his pressing need, desperate man. And we don't even, in verse 24, it's like the reflex of Jesus. Yep, I'm going with you. Right? I'm suffering, Jesus. Let me explain to you. Nope, I'm coming with you. That's verse 24. He doesn't even think about it. He doesn't have to check his schedule. I'm going with you, Jairus. And with the woman, right? Like the woman came and touched Jesus and she was healed and he could have kept moving, but Jesus intentionally stops. Because who touched me? He didn't have to do that. He stops. He looks around, and Christian, so he does for you. Who touched me? He's looking for the woman. He says, I want to know you. I want to talk to you. Do you see his tender love? And even after this woman confesses all that she had done, she told him the whole truth. What's his response? Daughter. God does not, friends, help those who help themselves. He helps those who cannot help themselves. And that's good news for you and I. That's really good news. That's gospel. Because the truth is, what, what do we have to bring before a holy and righteous God? And if you even for a moment think you have something to offer, you're going to miss the message of Jesus. He says, you, you've got nothing to bring to me. You're desperate. But that's exactly what qualifies you to come to Jesus. 
And it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. It's difficult in this scene. And I think it's really at this point where we get to the the core of the sandwich. Like, why are these two stories together? What we see in this scene is it doesn't matter who you are. All come to Jesus desperate and by faith. That's the only way to come to him, whether you're Jairus, his daughter, or this woman. Keep in mind, notice all the contrast. Jairus is named. We don't know the woman's name. Jairus is a male. He's married. He has a child. And this woman, obviously, is a female. She's likely unmarried and likely childless. Jairus is a distinguished member of the community. The woman is an outcast. Jairus' house, he has a house, and it's large enough to have multiple rooms and personnel helping out. Meanwhile, the woman has spent everything she's had on useless physicians. Jairus' daughter has a father to advocate for her. This woman is without any defender and must take matters into her own hands. You can't get much more opposite than these two individuals. They're on opposite ends of the social spectrum. Yet Jesus stops for her. Do you see his heart in this passage? You see his love? And obviously, he's after more than healing, right? Who touched me? Daughter. He's bringing more into his family. But lastly, we see not only his wisdom, his love, but his power. At the end of the day, what if we have an all-wise God who's loving? Well, that's nice that he cares, but what's he going to do about it? Oh, friends, we have a powerful Savior. Look at his touch. His touch is tender and powerful. It's resurrection, which is to say Jesus offers hope when every other option is gone. That's what he does. He turns mourning into dancing and death into life. What was their darkest moment became the moment they would never forget. And in Christ, Christian, this is true of you as well. It must be because it happened to Jesus. All of this is clearly foreshadowing what Jesus himself would do on the cross and resurrection. Who would have thought, if we're, if we're trying to plan out God's plan of salvation to rescue sinners and rebels, to see the Son of God become man and die, we would be scratching our heads just like the disciples saying, this doesn't make sense. Ah, but friends, the cross may seem like foolishness to those who do not believe, but to those who believe, it's the power of God unto salvation. They thought Jesus was just a healer, but he gives so much more. He's giving himself to them. I just remind you, Christian, this is what you need. You need to see Jesus Christ, the one who is all-wise, who is loving, and who is all-powerful. And friend, I, I don't know anybody here. <laughs> so I don't know if you, this is your first time in this church or however old this church is you've been here. I don't know. But I, I want to say to you, I'm really glad that you're here this morning. I know that the other Christians are really glad that you're here this morning. And the message of this church is that everybody, 
No matter you put yourself in Jairus' camp or this woman's camp, needs Jesus. And so I would invite you to talk to somebody here this morning. If, if you've never done that, you don't know what it's like to follow Jesus, this is a good place to ask those questions. And I would invite you to do that this morning. But friends, as we zoom out and conclude this morning, I can't help but look at this passage and see the, these women of Israel in distress. And I don't, I don't make much sometimes of numbers throughout Scripture, but isn't it interesting that this woman was suffering for 12 years? This little girl was 12 years old. And I just wonder, in the back of Mark's mind, with these daughters of Jerusalem and the number 12 thinking of Israel, I wonder if Zechariah 9 is not in here somewhere. Again, just my thought as I was reading it, which says, one day, one day, Zechariah, hundreds of years before Jesus stepped on the seat, says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, a fowl of a donkey? On that day, the Lord, their God, will save them as the flock of his people. O daughters of Jerusalem, which we see in this passage, it's time to rejoice because the king has arrived. Oh, and he is powerful. Oh, but he is so loving at the same time. Fear not then, John Newton continues to write, distressed believer, venture on his mighty name. He is able to deliver and his love is still the same. Can his pity or his power suffer thee to pray in vain? Wait, but his appointed hour and thy suit thou shalt obtain. Friend, no matter who you are, Jesus rescues desperate people by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your wisdom and love and power. We will never outgrow our need for you. And so help us, guard us from the temptations this week, this afternoon, to, to think that you're nothing more but a crutch or you're an extra dose of help when we need it. But help our posture to be as these women, desperate for you. And may we trust you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.